Welcome to the Seek Forgiveness Podcast. Seek Forgiveness for the launch Mental Health Ki Hunda here. A transformative translation guide that looks to explore and explain common mental health issues in a way that Sikh and Punjabi speaking communities can understand. If you'd like to find out more, please visit sikhforgiveness.com. If you're in the UK, you can purchase directly from the website. If you're looking to purchase internationally, please check out Amazon. Today's podcast will be with an inspiring young man, Harpreet Singh, an ambassador for This Can Happen and a mental health advocate. Welcome to the Seat Forgiveness podcast, Harpreet. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So tell us more about your mental health journey and where did it all begin? Okay, so that's a great question to start with. So you use the word journey there. So obviously we're heading in a particular direction, right? And um, it's important to know, obviously, mental health starts from day one. You know, even babies have mental health. It doesn't just suddenly appear when you kind of grow up. Um, when I do sort of trace my steps back when it comes to mental health, I know that my upbringing wasn't the best. So my parents got divorced fairly early. I was only a couple of years old when they got divorced. There's a lot of domestic abuse, a lot of trauma, a lot of violence in, in my household, you know, for the first 10 years. Um, so, but at that point, as you know, when you're a kid, you're a bit carefree. I didn't really feel much different. And you kind of shrug off certain feelings like, yeah, my friends didn't have they had a dad, I didn't have a dad, you know, they had a bit more money, I didn't have much money, but you just kind of carry on. But I think the point where it really hit me was when I was 10 years old, my sister died of cancer. And she had it for over a year. So it was a very slow and painful process. There were many ups and downs that someday she'll get better, someday she didn't. Um, And I think that at that point was when I realised, well, actually, you know, mentally, uh, I'm a little different here. I'm, I'm feeling a certain way that I can't explain. My mind is a bit different as well. Um, and I remember one specific incident, actually, when I was at my uncle's house, and this was a couple of months after the funeral, and I just got so frustrated with, with the fact that my sister had gone, and I couldn't sort of cope with it. And so what I started to do is I, was, I had a lovely conversation with God at the time, and I started to kill a few ants, as bad as it sounds. Um, I was stepping on ants, and I was like, tell me, God, why did you have to take my sister? And I must have gone through like 15, 20 ants before I gave up, right? Um, but at that point, it became apparent, yeah, I, I've changed as a person now. Uh, you know, my mind is a little different. My feelings are a little different. And so if I was to pinpoint the beginning, I would say when I was 10 years old, you know, just my first real bereavement in my family, a close family member, that's what really started to make me think about my mental health a bit more. Did anybody in your family pick up your, your changes of mood and your behaviour at that time? Probably not. So I was a bit of a sort of wild child, you know, sometimes erratic, right? So, you know, some days I was amazing uh, to, to deal with. I was really quiet and calm and collective. Some days, some days I was a riot. So any sort of change in behaviour in terms of that was quite normal. But what you've got to understand as well is people that were close to me were going through their own trauma as well. So, you know, bereavement hits everybody differently. And it was legit the biggest bereavement in our entire family, you know, many different generations because like, my grandparents were still alive at that point. So we hadn't really experienced death like that. And so because everybody was dealing with it on their own, not as a collective, I don't think anybody spotted that I was changing as a person or my sisters or my mom, you know, we were all just affected by it, but we couldn't really see other people um, in terms of how they were affected by it because we were dealing with our own stuff. Yeah, and I think there's, there's like levels of um, bereavement and grief that, as you mentioned, hits everyone. And being the age that you were, 
um maybe a lot of people probably thought he's growing he's changing it's it normal and then exactly. to add to it mm. the grief of losing your sister so why is men's mental health for you so important now men's mental health for me particularly and i can only talk about my family and my circles it's really important because for two reasons one is that we never talk about it right i can't pinpoint a family member that openly talks about their mental health and if they do struggle with their mental health they're really sort of uh, put in a corner you know put them in a the corner turn the lights down a little bit just let them be don't really get the support that they need and i think the other reason for it as much as we hate to admit it we do still live in a patriarchy so if men are sort of running the show i know it's changing a little bit but growing up men were effectively running the show if they if they're running the show and their mental health isn't great that has a huge knock on effect to everyone you know so all the women all the children um and and that's why i think you know men's mental health is very important because we almost culturally put men on a pedestal saying you are the king right we follow you now you lead the way and if they don't take their mental health seriously then like i said the knock on effect to everyone else is just you know there's the shared trauma things go horribly wrong and then who do you turn to you know it feels like the family falls apart sometimes mm. um it's like the ripple effect is dominoes as they say so i think you're probably able to resonate this a lot of men within the Punjabi community directly fall into using alcohol as a self-help and was that something that you had gone through and when did that start yeah yeah so I was a uh, I, I sort of became an alcoholic quite young so in my family again looking back you know when you're at the time it's normalized isn't it everybody's drinking um but when you look back you think well actually maybe they were drinking to so sort of numb the pain that they might have had and i was no different so I remember at age 10 i was going through those things and like you pointed out you know puberty it's boys differently so if you're going through bereavement and then puberty comes in you know it affects you in so many different ways and i remember when i was about 14 15 i had had a huge growth spurt i went from like 5 foot 6 to 6 foot in the space of a week right i remember because the trousers i was wearing i was actually at my uncle's house and the trousers i was wearing fit me when i was there and then a week later, when I came back home, they didn't fit me. That's how quickly I kind of grew. And the down, the, the, obviously the benefit of that is, yeah, I'm tall. You know, I'm, you, know it's, <laughs> you can brag about your height and whatnot. But the downside to that is that uh, the elderly men in my family would start sort of allowing me in circles that I wasn't allowed in before. So the drinking circles. And I remember age 14, 15, it was one of my uncle's birthday party. And they let me have a drink. And it was like a strong drink. You know, I didn't start off with beers or anything like that. It was it was whiskey from day one. And when I, I only had one shot that evening, um, but I remember that feeling, that, you know, the sort of lighter feeling. And for me at the time, that felt amazing because I had such a weight on my shoulders, on my mind. You know, as a teenager, I had the, the biggest issue I had with my mental health is I couldn't switch off my mind would just go places. And I remember some nights, my, I'm just sitting there holding my head thinking, why can't you switch off? Why are you still thinking about these things, right? And suddenly when you have a drink, your mind slows down, right? And your body feels amazing. So when I had that one drink, I, I realized that, yeah, this is a feeling I want to have again. Now, the, obviously, the, it's, I'm not here to say that alcohol is completely bad, but alcohol abuse is categorically bad, right? And I think my drinking became occasional to regular and so after that occasion many other sort of uh, parties I started drinking on the sly you know try to drink as much as you can without mum finding out that was a bit of a competition that I had with some of my other cousins that were drinking underage and then when I became about 16 years old I started working for the local sweet centre with catering so 
very, very easy gig, right? You just go around, pull plates or samosa down, pick them up afterwards. But at the end of the party, with the Punjabi community as it is, there's just like bottles and bottles of alcohol everywhere, you know, Bacardi, vodka, Shivas Regal, um, famous grouse, you know, a, a right mix. And then it became a little bit of a competition with me and my friends at the time, who were older than me, by the way, they were they were at legal age of drinking to get as many bottles as we could because everybody got so drunk at the end of the parties, they didn't really care about what alcohol was left. So for us, it was just there for the taking. And then I think that's when the occasional drinking became more regular. So every weekend I was drinking. And then when we had bottles left over, we'd have a session during the week. And it wasn't at any fancy place. You know, it was always at the back of a job centre car park or it was at a park somewhere, you know, not nothing really glamorous. But I just kept drinking more and more. And then my mind kept thinking more and more. So then, you know, it was just a sort of um, like a ripple effect that like you say, the more my mind kept thinking, the more I kept drinking. But the problem with that is, although I felt great during a very small period of time, once I'm sober again, I'm still stuck with all those problems that were there before I started drinking. And uh, with me, you know, sometimes you get happy drunks. I was very happy drunk, but I was one of those drunks that once I got to a certain point, I would just run away. So all my friends would say, happy, we don't know where you went, right? You just legged it. And I don't know how I survived because when I ran, I ran, in, I ran to roads and whatnot, you know, so it's, it's you know, maybe Mara just killed by that didn't run over at the time. I would just run in any direction. I, I didn't care which way I was running. And for me, that was a sign that, yeah, I'm drinking, but, I, you know, this drinking is me trying to run away from something. Um, so, yeah, so that that's me come, kind of coming into alcohol and, and then the abuse just started. And I think the point where I realised it's very abusive now, I'm abusing my body with this alcohol, is when I started drinking by myself virtually every day at home. So I would hide a bottle, pull it out, drink it. And next thing you know, you're drunk like virtually every single day. And I would hide it fairly well. Um, or sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I would just throw up in my bedroom and my mum would come in and be like, I'm absolutely ashamed of you, your terrible son. And obviously when you hear that, those things, what do, you, what do you want to do? You want to drink more, right? You want to numb that pain as well. So yeah, so that, at that point, it really started to become a really toxic relationship with alcohol for me. And it was... I guess a form of coping mechanism to numb the pain, as you said, of, of a of a build up of you know, losing your sister, and even though you're at a young age, I think this is one of the things, especially families as well, is even at a young age where children have experienced forms of um, domestic abuse or abuse within the family. I think as they get older, I think parents um, or siblings and and other family members ultimately believe that you've forgotten that it ever happened because yeah. they've forgotten or they've numbed the feeling that it happened but actually I think as you said you carried it forward and I think it carried forward onto the impact of when you did lose your sister and how everybody was changing and how there wasn't many supports available for you um, at that time so did your friends not ever check in on you when you were like at home and drinking? Did they not notice that you were drinking alone or did they ever ask for you to come out and do say more sessions or? No, nobody checked in on one another. We thought getting together and getting drunk was a good thing. Um, you know, you didn't get, you didn't think twice. Yeah, it's a good thing. Let's get together, have a session. I had three different circles of friends that drank. So I had no shortage of sessions to attend. Right. Um, and what was really interesting is much like the, the elder generation that I was exposed to at the time, when we got drunk, we started pouring our heart out. We started to talk about our feelings sometimes. And then the next day we were like, that was a great session. I can't remember what I spoke about, but it was a great session. And then inadvertently we were having a healing session talking about how we feel, but because we were drunk, it, it didn't have any lasting impact. 
but you wanted to have feel that again and uh, in our mind we were thinking it's the alcohol but really it was the talking to one another about how we're actually feeling but yeah we all knew that some friends were going down the route of alcoholism but we just left them to it because I don't think any of us were strong enough to sort of reach out um, and say you know you might have a bit of a problem here um, and the only group... mindset yeah as well exactly yeah none of us became sober um, we all kept on drinking uh, I think I was the first to actually become sober but I remember the only group of circle of friends that I had that really questioned me why I was drinking were my Sikh friends. So they were baptized Sikhs that I played football football with. And mind you, the football culture at the time was to play football and have a drink afterwards. But then you had these three or four groups of sins, basically, that would be like, yeah, we're not drinking. We're happy as we are. And I think it wasn't until they started really asking me questions that I really started to think about, have I got a problem here? You know, um, like I remember one, one time I said to my, one of those things I'm like why don't you just have a drink have a session he goes how do you feel when you when you drink I go you feel great and he goes I feel great all the time why would I why would I need to drink and that point I started thinking wow you've got something there that I haven't because I don't feel great all the time that's why I drink but they feel great all the time and that's why they don't drink so so yeah so at that point I I would say that my seat friends at the time were very important and I guess at this point it's worth mentioning the point that you know if you're only surrounded by people of one mindset like for example if you're surrounded by people who drink all the time it's almost like you're trapped in there with them you know um but because i had a variety of different circles expo- i was exposed to at uni at, at football at work etc it was the football friends that, that were religious that actually managed to save me at the time would you say that at that moment in time that's when you realized that enough was enough yeah yeah absolutely um i think there were a few in- occasions where i drank and i got problematic like I was telling you about the one time I when I threw up you know all over my bedroom floor and my mum just wasn't talking to me properly and and at that point I thought you know what, I'm gonna try to give up you know and I, and I, and I had a few failed attempts so uh, it, it wasn't as smooth as I would like to tell it I'd love to say yeah one day I woke up and I didn't want to drink anymore but I, I kind of relapsed a few times in the sense that I didn't get drunk drunk but I did have the occasional drink um and you know, I knew that I had to go cold turkey. I knew, I knew that for me, because it was such a problem, I couldn't just reduce my alcohol intake because for me, it's a slippery slope, you know. And it's funny you mentioned that. So, and I think that's one of the things that professionals, medical professionals actually recommend is if you are someone who heavily drinks or has a form of addiction, it's actually slowly weaning yourself off the actual um, substance. It's it's like alcohol is not completely going as you said cold turkey it's doing it bit by bit because you're more likely to relapse and you'll have withdrawal symptoms and you do have withdrawal symptoms because you're missing out the feeling but also your body is changing yeah absolutely so, yeah it's it it does take time and I think that's a lot of things some people don't understand is with every mental health um, struggle, there is ups and downs and there's ways that you have to manage it and find the right circles. And you're right, having the right circles and the right um, community does impact the way you see your life and path. And in that instance, do you think that's how you found your path with Siki and how has Siki helped you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, getting a glimpse you know, the grass is always green on the other side. My neighbour was a gosek. Neither of us had actually grass, which is ironic, but <laughs> I use that phrase, but neither of us had grass in our driveway. It's block paving, you know, that that was the standard uh, thing that we all kind of did. But um, 
hypothetically, yeah, the grass was green on the other side. I looked at his life and I thought, wow, he's really happy. But then I had to really understand, you know, why they were happy and what they were doing. Now, what you'll find with sick years, especially if you're born, where, you, you know, you cut, you get your cases cut, you cut your case, you don't really pray, you don't really know much about your history, etc. It can be sometimes really hard to want to follow Sikhi because it's a very outward religion as well as inwards, right? So the commitment of the keeping your case, wearing at the start and actually doing something, it's not like, because I explored a lot of faiths and there were a lot of faiths out there that I would say I could have turned to and would have been slightly easier in the sense that I didn't have to change my appearance and I could have just believed one thing and therefore I was saved, right? Whereas not that straightforward with Sikhis, I would say it's a slightly more advanced religion in the sense that you've got to do a lot more. Um, yeah, so for me, I was, you know, I was looking from the outside in and then I started to go to the Guru Gauru more often with them. Um, I started to go to like Sikh talks at the time. So remember, this was a time in 2007, 2008. There wasn't much social media. I don't think Facebook existed then. It was like High Five or MySpace, if you remember that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that was MSN amazing. Messenger. Yeah, that's it. That, that's exactly what it was, MSN Messenger. And so any time an event was on, we'd get somebody drop us a poster in MSN Messenger or would see it at the Guru Kari. And so I started to go to various talks and learn about my history, learn about the depths of Sikhi as well. And the more I went to those talks, the more I started to sort of fall in love with Sikhi. Now, at the earlier before we started to press record, we were talking about the other podcast I was, I, I was a part of, right, which mm-hmm. is about transgender LGBT. And one of the things I mentioned in that podcast, so slight spoiler alert for you, Sandy, is I was talking about transitioning. So you know how people talk about transitioning, coming out the closet. For me, getting into Sikhi was exactly the same. You know, I felt like I was transitioning into something that I actually am. So it wasn't easy. There was a lot of sort of vanity issues. When I started to grow my beard, it only grew on one side, not the other. So I, I, I grew it for a little while. And then I shaved it and I grew it and I shaved it. And I just felt guilty every time I shaved it because I wanted to keep my gifts. I really wanted to practice Sikhi, but I couldn't. Um, and then eventually Maharaj Kirpa, something just clicked and I decided to stop caring about those things, which was, which was um, you know, a big, a, a big moment in my life, a, a huge change because it can take people many, many years, even decades to stop caring about the things that are holding them back. And I mentioned earlier, my mind was very sort of um, constantly thinking about things, right? And the more I learned about Sikhi, the, every question I had, Sikhi, gave, Sikhi had an answer for it. And I'm not talking about the basic questions, but the deep, the deep questions. Why are we here? What are we here to do? Why do bad things happen? You know, the questions sometimes we shy away from because we're, we can't find the answers. And for me, I, I managed to find a lot of the answers. And when I found the answers, the mind started to settle a bit more. And what I found myself doing was writing a lot more, being a lot more reflective, you know, naturally. That, I know that through therapy, they talk about writing about your past and how it made you feel, et cetera, and even your present. And because I started to write a lot more, I remember the feeling actually when I first started writing, it felt as if the, the thoughts in my head were coming through my arm and out my finger and through the pen onto the page. And every time I wrote it down, I felt like that's it. It's, it's gone out my head now. Those thoughts that were stuck in my head for so long have come out. And because I started to contemplate a lot more, you know, in terms of philosophy, theology and things like that, I, I just felt, you know, this. And then, and then I felt like I became to a more of a natural state where I was comfortable with myself and then naturally I fell into Sikhi and, and, and then I took on in 2008 so I became a baptized Sikh then and I've sort of never looked back and like I said alcoholism I had stopped a couple of months before that and when you become baptized you know you're not going to go back to that anyway I stopped eating meat as well um, and I remember my last meal was a wicked zinger meal from KFC <laughs> I, I kept the box in my bedroom for about a year just as a souvenir and then eventually I had to kind of throw it out because it was as you can imagine it wasn't it wasn't that great to keep around but um 
yeah, so that, that's when I kind of just kind of fell into Sikhi and, and never looked back. And those friends that I used to session with, we see each other on occasions, but they did sort of stop inviting to sessions because my presence made them feel bad for drinking. And uh, which, which was, you know, I didn't, I didn't judge them. I was like, if you guys want to drink, drink, you know, I'll just kind of stick around and we can still socialize. But they didn't want me there because my presence on its own was very uncomfortable for them because I think deep down inside they wanted to stop drinking, maybe not follow Sikhi like I did, but they wanted to stop drinking but they weren't ready for it. And so I, I lost a lot of friends there, but at the same time, I gained a lot of friends in, in Sikhi as well. So in terms of Sangat, you know, I started to go to a lot of Sikhi camps. So made a lot of friends then. And, and what you'll find is that you can actually, this was, a, this was a breakthrough moment for me. You can actually have a good conversation with somebody when you're sober. And I had never had one before, you know, before that. So um, that, that was, you know, completely blew my mind. And um, just being around other people, feeling their good positive energy, it just really uplifts you. So yeah, that was a huge, huge turning point in my life. Do you think as a young sick male that you had potentially peer pressure into drinking alcohol? Yeah, it was, like I said, it was so normalized. Everybody wanted to do it. And it was just the macho bravo thing to do at the time. And the people that didn't drink got left out. You know, they just, they got the good grades basically. You know, they were at home revising while we were sessioning. And um, so, yeah, there was definitely huge peer pressure, people to drink. And um, it's, I remember actually when, when I was younger, this is before I started drinking, but my other nephew who was small and they would always play the, the beer game. I don't know if you ever did it, just pretend to give him a beer and then pull it back. And then the kids always oh, just okay. like, yeah. And one of my, one of my nephews, like one beer was open, one was shut and he'd always go to the open one. So that, you know, at a young age before he could even talk, he learned that this is the open one and this is what I should put in my mouth. So yeah, it always starts from a, a young age and you always hear about the Punjabi stories about, you know, wetting the whistle so they dip their finger in whiskey and then put it in the baby's lips and whatnot. And so, yeah, the, the pressures are huge. And every party, you know, everybody's drinking, you know, every wedding and whatnot. So it's it's hard to avoid. And if you do try to avoid it, you feel like a sort of a, a, a sore thumb. You stick out like a sore thumb, don't you? So, yeah, definitely there was peer pressure. Did you also have that peer pressure while you were at university, though, as well? rather than just in the Punjabi community, say, like with family? Yes, because I've started drinking at age 15. I had been a heavy drinker for about three years anyway. So at university, I was full of all these friends that were Punjabi, non-Punjabi, and they were all drinking. And I was sort of coming to the point where I was stopping. <laughs> so the first year I did drink, you know, there was free alcohol everywhere. You know, um, the, the bars at the universities and whatnot were giving out, you know, for a pound, you get like three, four pints of cider and whatnot. So, um, but I didn't feel the pressure then because I was such a casual, well, more than casual actually drinker at the time anyway. There was no pressure at that point. When I was younger, there was a huge pressure on drinking because that's all that we wanted to do, you know, um, see which shop would give us alcohol without ID, go to a park, have a session. And then, like I said, when it became readily available through our jobs, um, that peer pressure kind of died down a little bit because it was just so easy to get and we were doing it on the regular anyway. So by the time I got to university where people were, exploring their relationship with alcohol I think I was coming towards the end of my relationship with alcohol and so you know when people this is when social media started to get bigger and bigger people started to post pictures of them with alcohol and whatnot and and it wasn't a big deal for me I didn't look at it and think I want to be like that because I'd been doing it for three years before that you know mm. so you're already ahead of the game in that in oh, that sense <laughs> oh yeah I remember one of my friends took a picture um on his phone and this was when it was like 0.5 megapixel right so it's really pixelated <laughs> But this was during one of the sort of catering sessions that we did. It was a double gig. So there's a, there a hall in Wolverhampton where you have upstairs and downstairs. So we had one gig downstairs and then straight away one gig upstairs. And it was huge and everybody had a 
great time, inverted commas, i.e. they got really drunk and they left a lot of bottles around. And at that time we managed to take, I was going to say steal, but I don't, I'm not sure if it's stealing, if it's free. Um, we managed to take 26 bottles of alcohol, 26. And he, he's the one who took them home, you know, cling, cling in the bags, right? The black bags that we were meant to be picking up the bandif and the, the disposable cutlery, but they was just full of alcohol. And he took them to his house because his mom was actually okay with alcohol in the house. And he took a picture and he laid it on the bed. And I remember that picture, but there was no social media to put it on, but we were going around just showing it on his little dinky phone, like a really small screen. And we're like, check this out. And um, like on a Nokia 3310. Sony Ericsson. <laughs> they didn't even I think. have it, yeah. Sony Ericsson, I think it was, yeah. And uh, yeah, people were like, wow, that's amazing. And so that's how we spread it now. But then social media kicked in a couple of years later. It just made it so much easier because you could just upload it and then everybody can kind of see it. But at that point, people were legally allowed to drink. So for us, it was a big deal because we weren't legally allowed to drink. So we were like kind of bad boys at the time. Um, but it, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that picture because that was the we, the most bottles we managed to take in, in one gig purely because of the double gig and there were so many of us. Do you think because of say like the pariarchian as well as like individuals who have grown up with say alcoholic family members around them that they've there's more people wanting to not drink regardless of if they're of faith based or not it's a again I can't really talk about my circles but I've noticed now a lot of people have stopped drinking um and that's not not the same reason I stopped drinking I stopped drinking for spiritual religious reasons and obviously health-wise it wasn't great I think people have generally just clocked on that, yeah, alcohol can be a very abusive substance, so they slow down a little bit. I, I've, I haven't really witnessed many people that have stopped drinking due to a, an unfortunate event. Like I had an uncle who drank himself to death. Like it got to the point where his body was rotting even before he passed away, so it wasn't a pleasant sight. And all his sons kept on drinking, you know, so sometimes it can go the opposite way where if something bad happens, it affects the other person and they just fall into that cycle of drinking as well. But, but I think there's generally a, a huge awakening now, especially within Sikhs now, that, you know, we don't need to drink. Or if we're having a huge wedding and a party, it doesn't need to be, there doesn't need to be alcohol there for us to have a good time, yeah. you know? And um, yeah, I think the more awareness that we do through platforms like this and the more alcohol awareness things that are out there, I think the better it is. And uh, let's not forget as well that alcohol is a lot more available and the stigma has gone away from it. So, for example, when I was growing up, the Bibiana family would not drink at all, right? The, the females just couldn't drink at all. But then slowly but surely, they'd have they'd take a little bottle here and they start drinking on the slide. Whereas now, it's completely normalised. You know, females are drinking, nubby females do drink. And now it's become a problem for them as well. So the same problems that men had many years ago, Punjabi females are now having, they're suffering from alcoholism as well. So yeah, I, th- I think a mixture of cultures changing, the taboo going away, you know, easily accessible... When things are easy, more easily accessible, the sort of, you know, wow factor this goes away, you know? So when, yeah. we, when we were drinking, it was like, ooh, we're not meant to be drinking. And that's what really enticed us to drink. Whereas now, if everyone's, you know, everybody's so comfortable with drinking and they're like, oh, yeah, have a drink, you can actually just say, well, no, I'm okay. You know, you, you feel like you have more of a choice. And it's, it's a good point that you've actually pointed out, whereas, you know, females are drinking a lot more and yeah it's readily available and it is okay for females to drink as well but I've noticed even within my own circles as well where other females or females have openly said they choose not to drink but they feel the pressure or they're asked several times like or as or some people may see it as a competition to get the one friend who doesn't drink to drink like it's a game or something that should happen but 
actually I think we need to get to a stage where we just say you know if they choose not to drink then they choose not to drink they are happy with that it's not your choice to kind of make it a task to ensure they drink um so there is I think there is a a lot of people who are choosing not to drink but the mentality is is different for everyone um what coping techniques and mechanism do you use now besides the fact that you're now following your faith so i mentioned earlier writing you know i I, i'm a huge advocate of open conversation and transparency um talk talk to somebody or just talk to yourself in the sense that through a private blog or a diary and whatnot um because like i said for me i know it worked because I felt like there were thoughts in my head that I couldn't get out and I managed to get out through writing. And I had a, a really good blog actually for about two, three years. Kind of got rid of it now because I don't align to those thoughts, which is which is one thing you notice anytime you blog, your thoughts now are not going to be the same as they were last year. If they are, you're probably not doing life right because the way life works is you grow, you mature, your thoughts expand, right? Um, but I would definitely tell, you know recommend either talk to somebody you feel comfortable talking to and this doesn't have to be a professional therapy session just a general chat or how, about how you feel and if you if you feel that you haven't got anybody in your circles that you can do that to then definitely reach out to professional help that's what it's there for right um and for me you know the more Punjabi sick people that are openly talking about mental health professionally the better um because like I know a few people that they try to reach out to counselors and therapists but because they went for Punjabi sick they couldn't understand where they were coming from and there's there's a lot of unconscious biases stereotypes you know things like that that prevent people from talking because i'll give you an example of i know one person who said something about yeah the parents were, the parents got married here and the counselor who was non-punjabi said oh was it an arranged marriage you know just jumped straight in right and it, it, little things like that can make it hard to talk if you know the other person is just making all these stereotypes about you so yeah so reaching out to sick punjabi people in the mental health profession definitely as well this this you got two times in the day where you can really be the most reflective i think one is the morning and one is nighttime before you go to bed and the reason i say that is because in the morning when you wake up your mind's kind of you just come out of a slumber state you know it's the first thoughts in the mind think about what you're thinking about right don't just try to go straight on your phone um and just look at what you know the things that you look at during the day really try to think about yourself what you plan to do today you know and and in the evening before you go to bed really sort of think about your day you know just to be a lot more conscious of it because what I found the older I get is life is life speeds up exponentially the older you get you know when I was in my teens life couldn't go slower in my 20s it sped up a little bit now I'm in my 30s it's just going so unbelievably fast you blink and you miss it yeah and yeah. so having a more conscious approach to it by mornings and especially the evenings before you go to bed think about what have I done today what went well what didn't that is really good as well because the other the other danger of being a bit unconscious or sort of just coasting through life is that all these things happen and they just jump straight into your subconscious and then a couple of years down the line they all they come out they resurface at the worst possible time uh, and these might be things that at the time didn't seem like a big deal but five years down the line you know they all built up you know it happened so many times so so often that it it became really heavy and so just just be conscious of that as well because then you can really deal with the things as and when and be yeah. more proactive and there's one um sort of a phrase or sort of story fuel advice let's call it that i was given um and it was about sort of people and storms so there's three types of people there's there's one that sees a storm coming and makes sort of preparations the second is when the storm is actually here they realize it's here and then they they deal with it then but the third is they're so oblivious to the storm that has come 
and went and then they realized oh there was a storm here now i think with mental health you can you should ideally be the first person where you can be as proactive as possible in theory, in practice it's never going to happen all the time but try to be as much as you can but even if you're the second person when it's here you know it's here and you deal with it you can still sort of salvage you know any damage that it's going to do but if you end up being the third person on a regular basis then that storms and a common go and cause all sorts of damage and you know stressful situations can take ages to kind of get over you know grief can take ages to get over low moods etc so you try not to be the third person try to be the, the first or the second because a more proactive approach to mental health a more open transparent talking about it on a regular basis being conscious of what's happening how am i feeling you know what have i done uh, that might have made me feel this way i think that is the way to sort of really deal with mental health and it's only going to happen if we all do it if you get one person who just does it in isolation, it might work for them, but everyone else suffers. But if we do it as a collective, if we encourage people to talk, you know, to, to somebody professional, make make a, make a blog or a diary or talk to other people, if you have more people out there that are mental health advocates, then we can deal with mental health, um, you know, because it's just going to get more complex as time goes on, such as the, the issues that we face. But we'll be able to deal with it like a community, like we, like we used to. You know, the hardships of our yeah. parents' generation? They were more... Just go around and have a cup of tea and some more and just yeah. I think also I think one of the things maybe the older generation have missed out is the ability of just being able to go to someone's house just ad hoc. Whereas now it's kind of like, let me know when you're free. Let me check my diary. Let me schedule you in. And there's all these boundaries and everything like that. And yes, they are good, but ultimately I think we've missed out on the the daily noticeable behaviors and triggers because we haven't seen those family members on a regular basis um it's like when you don't see someone for such a long time they're always like oh great you look amazing but I think we both know as you grow older you begin to master how you need to look in front of people um Mm. and have your your poker face or your mask of being out or being professional or being around family and no one truly knows who you are and you're able to conceal that because you don't feel comfortable talking about it yourself and I think writing is yes writing allows you to give that reflection and as you said your blog that you had for two to three years doesn't align with who you are now but that's after reflecting and looking at what you wrote and how you were feeling at that time and you t- decided to take control and say, actually, I don't need this anymore. It served its purpose and now I'm ready to say bye. And I think that's really important is being able to give control back to you and not allow anybody else to do it for you. And I think that's what a lot of people seek is acceptance. Is it the right thing for me to do? Shall I do this? tell me what I need to do do you do you agree yeah yeah absolutely one point I want to mention what you were talking there was uh you know sort of that the, the culture of um, shame and honor and things like that now we know back in the day if somebody was struggling with mental health we, we would say yeah, keep yes. it within your house right um but now you know we're a bit less we don't think that anymore we think well actually we're going to openly talk about this because if you if one person starts speaking about their mental health it could save another life you know it could save Mm. somebody else who might have been feeling the same way what I do at work is I 
go to different business areas that I don't know the people and I give a sort of 30 minute session. So for the first 15 minutes to talk about my mental health experiences within the workplace. And then for the last 15 minutes, I always have an open forum. And every time I do the session, the organizers are like, are you sure 15 minutes at the end is enough time? People might not want to talk. And I'm like, well, if they don't want to talk, then we know we've got a problem, right? But let's see what happens. And Maharaj uh, Kirpa, every time I've done the session, which I've run about five or six times now over the space of two years in different business areas, everybody wants to talk. We actually run out of time at the end. And one of the feedbacks that I got from a senior manager was that, you know, I, I really appreciate your talk. Uh, thank you for being honest and transparent and talking about how you felt and the things you went through. One other, one other staff that she manages, manages messaged her and says, I like that talk so much. I've been struggling with my mental health for at least a year now, but I've never spoken about it. Can I speak to you about it? Because one of my top tips is speak to your manager. Um, because, you know, anytime you have a one-to-one before you talk about business and performance, talk about how you feel, mm. whether you feel good or not. You know, don't just feel, again, one of the mistakes we do is when it comes to mental health, we only talk about it when it's bad. We don't talk about it when it's good. Um, and what that does, it, it, it puts a stigma behind mental health that it's a bad thing. Um, so, yeah, that, that was a great feedback that I got, you know. And, and so for, for me, every time I do these sessions, the feedback I always get is that it hits home and it helps. So really be as open as you can. And, and trying to take that into our community, into our circles and our families, it's a little hard. My mom didn't like it. She still doesn't like it. She's like, uh, you're just telling the world about your problems. I'm like, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm sharing my problems so that people don't hide their problems. She doesn't quite get it yet because she, she's of that mentality. But I think I'll win her around in about five or six years. <laughs> you know, that's I think it does take time. I mean, even as setting up seat forgiveness, it's it's a struggle because people people still perceive that you're a woman. You shouldn't really do that. Um, you shouldn't openly talk about mental health. But as you said, you know, if you don't talk about it, then it's continuously going to be hidden it's not going to be a place where someone can say, oh, okay, it's a normal conversation. Let's, let's talk about it. And representation and relatability is so important because we haven't had, indiv- you haven't had an individual like you who was up at a talk or um, able to say, yeah, I've experienced this, but this is how I've changed. Or this is, this is what I used to transition or to learn that alcohol wasn't right for me. It was, seeing people who were already happy by not using alcohol or using any form of substance abuse to numb any pain what's your relationship with your mom now it's okay i had to block her on facebook though she <laughs> she, she didn't like my post at all and i figured let's just yeah you don't need to see them anymore but it's, it's okay it's getting better at the time but you, you mentioned one thing there like when i was growing up there weren't people like me out there talking about the mental health but there were people like me that were going through the same things that i was going through and it, looking back, it is quite tragic that I've lost a lot of people to mental health, right? Poor mental health. So I've had many friends that have killed themselves. So suicide is huge between men, especially, especially Punjabi men. And uh, looking back, I do always think that would they still be around if we were, if they felt like they could speak openly or to somebody? And so that just gives me an extra nudge to speak about this because, you know, I, the power of one person talking, you can never underestimate. They don't need to be an influential person in the community. They just need to have some form of connection with the person that might be struggling. So it could be a colleague, family, friend, just somebody that they follow on on social media and whatnot. But by seeing other people and hearing about their lived experiences, it it kind of, you know, 
encourages you to actually deal with the problems that you're having and maybe speak about them. So yes, if anybody's listening to this, if you are struggling, de- definitely if you if you feel brave enough, share share how you're feeling because it's gonna it's gonna do it, you know like it doesn't do any harm, right? It, the worst effect is no effect. You share how you feel and it changes nothing to nobody's life. That's the worst effect. But, but it's more likely that it's going to have a positive effect because it's going to, you know, break the stigma for somebody else to actually speak about their struggles. On that note, is there anything that you would like to share with the listeners of this podcast? Tips and advice. Um, so just coming back to what I've kind of said already, you know, just uh, I, I just can't. I, the biggest advocate that you can be is somebody who openly talks about their mental health and, and thinks about their mental health. And remember, mental health isn't an occasional thing, right? Uh, it, it's you know every single day every single breath that we take and the one advice that I'd give to people is just to sort of look, look ahead as well if you see things that are going to happen that are going to affect your mental health see what you can do in preparation right really be as proactive as you can and one thing I would say now that is relevant right now is that the pandemic's coming to a, a, a sort of an end but the way that the lockdown and the whole pandemic has affected people's mental health I think we will see in a sort of um, an adverse way, negative impact of it over the next couple of years, right? And I'm seeing it already. People are coming out and they don't really know how to act. People are getting angry with one another a lot more. Um, Neighbours always bickering, world rage is going up and whatnot. So the society in itself is becoming, in my opinion, a lot more intolerant of one another. And, then, and I think that stems from poor mental health across the board, right? And so things are going to happen to all of us, right, that we don't want to happen. Um, and just be conscious of when that does happen, how you think, how you react, you know, things that you say verbally or physically as well. Just be conscious of it. Because if you're in a good place, when bad things happen, you can generally sort of, you know, do well during that, that period. But if you're in a not so great place and bad things happen, you're going to do things that aren't you. You know, you're not going to feel like yourself and you're going to do something that you've never done before. So just try as much as possible to, to you know, Think about your mental health, put yourself in a great place, make sure the people around you are in a great place, constantly checking on people as well. Um, you, we mentioned it earlier, you know, people would pop around without an invite. I don't think we can do that anymore. Um, I, I, I think it's socially unacceptable now, isn't it, just to turn up uninvited. But let's use all the tools that we have to stay connected. So, you know, there's we've never been more connected as, as, as a society, and yet we don't really connect. So just picking up a phone and giving somebody a call, it can really make someone's day. I know it makes my day when somebody rings me out of the blue. Sometimes you hesitate picking it up, don't you? You're thinking, oh, do I really want to speak to this person? But because it's it's the thing about a phone, isn't it? When they ring, what they're really saying is speak to me right now. You know, they're not giving you an option. It's like, speak to me. But um, they might be ringing you for a reason, you know? So or I always try to make myself available and try, try to connect as much as I can because it's it's a collective effort, mental health. You know, the better we are as a community, the better everyone is. If, if we leave it to our own accord, then we are really going to struggle. So, yeah, that would be my one last ending. Of, I know it's a bit long for a sort of uh, final thought, but as a community, we're stronger, right? So just look out for one another and, and we'll do well. Thank you so much, Harfrey. It was really, really amazing to have heard about your journey and the things that you're doing within the community, not just in the Sangat, but in your workspace as well. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful for you to share your journey on Deep Forgiveness. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You do great work, by the way. Keep it up. <laughs>